If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, as I say every week, the passage is printed in your bulletin for you to follow along. There are also Bibles on the back table or on the book cart for you to take if you don't own a copy of God's Word. We return to Mark chapter 2, a passage that we were in Last week, those of you who are here last Sunday, it's a short passage and we spent uh, some considerable time in it as we began to conclude this series that we have been in for several weeks now, a couple months, maybe even a few months, uh, called The Life of a Pilgrim. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We focused last week on the fact that the life of a pilgrim is a life of feasting, gospel feasting, good news feasting. What I meant by this was not always that life will be a feast. Many of you know experientially that that is not the case. But what I do mean and what the Scriptures proclaim to us and promise to us is that even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of brokenness, all around us, and in our own hearts, there can be rejoicing because the Gospel is sweet. Jesus has come. He has made us right with God. His promises are true and He proved it by rising from the dead and guaranteeing it with His Spirit who now lives in us, giving us the power to live the kind of life that we've been talking about. A life that can put off anger. A life that can be content in all circumstances. A life that cannot be enslaved by the anxieties and the stresses of life. And so it was a reminder for us to not despair. To not lose heart but to believe, to rejoice, and to feast on what has been given us in the Gospel. Well, that was last week. And that was really only the first half of the passage. And today we focus on what Jesus calls His followers to, specifically in verse 20. But I'm going to read the whole passage again for us to have the context. Mark chapter 2 Verses 18 through 22. Listen again as I read. This is God's Word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. 
Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to begin with me this morning by thinking about the last time you really longed for something. Or maybe someone. Think about that longing and what it consisted of. Think about the effect that that longing had on you and your life and your priorities. I couldn't help but think about the second summer of my college years, the summer before uh, Anna, my wife, and I got engaged. She was headed off to a Christian camp to be a counselor there with uh, another dozen handsome Christian bachelors, and I was headed up here to Linden uh, to do summer work and to live with my parents. And let's just say that that summer, I was afraid that I was going to lose her. I longed for her. I longed to be with her, even though miles separated us. But my longing was channeled into resolve. I resolved to not let her forget that I was on the other side of the country every day thinking about her. And so each day after work, I worked construction, I'd come home tired and exhausted. And each day after work, no matter how tired, no matter what needed to be put aside, I wrote her. And if I was too exhausted that night, I'd get up early the next morning and write her before I went to work that every day when she went to her mailbox, there would be a letter waiting for her, reminding her that she was more important to me than anything. You see, as we return to this passage in Mark chapter 2, Jesus, in a way, says that kind of thing to us this morning. Last week, we looked mostly at the passage. We looked at the metaphors that Jesus speaks of here to describe who He is. But I want to focus on verse 20, and I want to focus on one truth for us to think about this morning, for us to really hear and digest today and this week, and it's this. A pilgrim's life is a life that hungers for Jesus. A pilgrim's life is a life that hungers for Jesus. You see, if you put last week's sermon and this week's sermon together, they complement one another. Yes, a pilgrim's life is a life of feasting. It's a life of feasting on the Gospel. And yet a pilgrim's life in the same way in the same manner, is a life that hungers for Jesus. See, alongside the feast of the Gospel is longing. A hunger for more. A hunger for the fullness of the presence of the Bridegroom who is spoken about in Mark Chapter 2. It's not a physical hunger any more than the spiritual feasting last week was a physical feasting. It's a hunger of 
the soul. It's the kind of hunger that was described in the very beginning of our worship service today as we read Psalm 73. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our souls were made to be satisfied in God. And so, if He's not here in His fullness, even though there can be some sense of feasting, there still will always be accompanying that a hunger and a longing for more. And that's what Jesus is saying to His followers. That's what He's saying to His disciples that sat there that day and you who sit here this morning that His followers will long for Him. Now I recognize that it's a bit odd telling someone to be hungry. You can't just manufacture hunger. You can't just create hunger. It's like when my wife gets frustrated at me because I don't like the taste of something. Why don't you like the taste of that? I don't know, because my taste buds send this signal to my brain that say, that is not good. I have no control over it. I hate cilantro. I just do. Shake your head all you want. Spiritual hunger is more than a decision. It's a heart issue. I recognize that. But what I want us to see this morning is that our passage, God's Word, along with the help of His Spirit, has given us something here that will assist us in cultivating the soil of our hearts. The Lord Jesus tells us that when He leaves, His followers will fast. Essentially, in part, He's saying, we hunger through fasting. Fasting is not only an outworking of hunger, an expression of longing, but it's even a way to intensify a hunger and a longing for His return. We won't fast like the Pharisees and Jews of old fasted as some religious exercise to be accepted before men. Or even as the Jewish system to to please God and to be accepted before Him. No, as we spoke about last week, there is a newness that Jesus brings to everything. Even the Old Testament forms of fasting. And so Christian fasting, let's just call it that, Christian fasting, which we are called to here, is grounded in the truth that the Son of God has triumphed. It is fasting that, in a sense, is feasting. It is fasting flavored with joy. We don't fast because we are empty. We fast because we are filled. But we want more. We want more of Him. See, no sooner had Jesus left this earth No sooner had He left His followers and the disciples to whom He spoke here in Mark 2 than the church begins to fast. We see it in Acts 13. We see it in Acts 14. And so this morning, for the next 
few minutes, I want to talk about the subject of fasting. I realize it's not something that we talk about a lot in the church. In fact, maybe this is the first sermon you've ever heard on the subject of fasting. Regardless, I suspect that many of you, even those of you who have been disciplined for many years in the habit, in the routine of being in God's Word, of crying out for the needs of your own soul and the needs of your family and the needs of our church and the needs of our world, even many of you never think about fasting. You never think about this discipline. Well, today we're going to think about it for a few minutes. Last week we had one point with three metaphors, and I tell this especially for our kids who are diligently trying to track with me. Today we have one point again, kids, but we have four questions that we're going to try to answer about fasting. So I've already told you the one truth that we're going to think about, and now we're going to begin by asking four questions. And the first question that we ask, a passage like this, and specifically verse 20 of Mark chapter 2, is what is Christian fasting? What is Christian fasting? After all, people fast for all kinds of reasons. One of the things we need to do right off the bat is take the kind of fasting that we're talking about out of the realm of of health. Jesus is not saying that you need to be healthy and fast while He's away. You do need to take care of your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is not talking about a health fast or a a fast for physical dietary reasons. He is talking about a spiritual fast. Last week we talked about abstaining, or we defined fasting as abstaining from food or drink for spiritual purposes. Now all of you know that fasting fasting is done by millions of people around the world all the time. Fasting is not a practice that is unique to Christianity. Millions of people fast for religious purposes. And we recognize that yes, by God's common grace, there is a recognition in the heart of man that too easily and too often the physical appetite gets in the way of the spiritual focus that we want to have. And yet I will say this, just like the prayers that are spoken without the mediation of Jesus Christ, the One who said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Me. Without the mediation of Jesus, just like the good deeds that are done in our world, not to the glory of God, fasting without the Bridegroom that is spoken of here is worthless. It accomplishes nothing. It is as Paul said to the Roman church, zeal without knowledge. 
See, fasting isn't some magical deed or practice to earn points. It's an expression of a heart that truly longs. Longs for the one true God, the triune God, as He is revealed once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Christian fasting recognizes that the bridegroom Jesus is gone. And that none of the good things on earth that that the Lord has given to us can take His place. And the promise of His return still lies ahead. It still lies before us. You see, it's an expression of the not yet of the kingdom. We talked about this briefly last week. How we live in this tension of the already and the not yet. And if the feasting of last week focused on what has already arrived in Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God to us in His person and in His work, then the fasting of this week, the hunger that we are called to this week, focuses on that which is still to come. On that which will be accomplished because of that which has already been accomplished by the work of Jesus on the cross. See, the life of a pilgrim hungers for Jesus. And this is what makes the practice that Jesus describes here distinctly Christian. Not just that it is directed at the one true God, but because lying behind it and undergirding it is the triumph of the Son of God on the cross. And all that that means for life in the new covenant. For life this side of the cross. That is the what of Christian fasting. But let's move on. When should we fast? That's the next question, kids. Not just what is Christian fasting, but when should we fast? This is a short one because the answer is whenever. Just make sure that at some point you are participating in this discipline. I mean, I suppose it goes without saying that since we are talking about it, that Jesus assumes in this passage that His followers are going to fast. He assumes that it will be part of their normal allegiance to Him. So while the Scriptures don't give specific instructions about when or how often, they do assume that fasting is happening in the life of a pilgrim. That the hunger for Jesus is being expressed in this way in our lives. And I don't know about you, but this this is a challenge for me. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, this is painful because I can't remember the last time I fasted, I think you're probably in good company. Fasting is one of those things that is easily forgotten. That is too easily not practiced. So in part, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would use this passage, would use last week's message to motivate us, to move us, 
to repent and to return to what Jesus calls His people to do. And one of the ways that He might do that is by looking at the why. Why should we fast? We could just say because God tells us to and leave it at that. But there's, there's more to be said. There's more to be said than I'll say this morning. But why should we fast? The Bible is full of accounts of God's people fasting for various reasons and for various purposes. In Judges chapter 20, the people of God fast in order that God might give them guidance. In First and Second Samuel, David fasts to express his grief, to express his sorrow over his sin. In First Kings 21, Ahab fasts to express his humility. Nehemiah, you'll remember. Nehemiah fasted because he was concerned about God's work in the world. In Ezra 8 and Joel chapter 2, which we read last week, the people fasted to intensify and to add urgency to their prayers. I could go on and on recounting these instances of God's people fasting. The point I'm simply wanting to make is that fasting has always been at the heart of the life of God's people. And at the heart of that practice is an expression of worship. See, we are instructed to worship God in this way. To worship God through our fasting. And it certainly can be for some of the reasons that we spoke of just a second ago. To express humility. To express sorrow. Because we're crying out for guidance. Whatever the reason, in the New Covenant, fasting is different because it's built on the foundation of Jesus and who He is and what He has done. And even in all those various circumstances of the Old Testament, underlying all that was a longing for God's people in the Old Testament to be redeemed. They longed for the coming Messiah who would bring forgiveness. And right there are Fasting, the New Covenant, the New Testament fasting immediately sets itself apart from the Old Testament because we have that assurance of forgiveness already. We have that assurance that is deeper and richer and fuller than what God's people of old could only see in shadowy form. We now see in vivid glory. And so the Apostle Paul can say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. So the fundamental reason of why you would fast It's because you know Jesus and you long for more of Him. You've experienced joy, but you know that more joy awaits 
You've experienced intimacy with Him, but you know that more intimacy awaits. You've experienced enough to feast, and yet you know that there is more still out there. The fact of the matter is that stuff, whether it be food or whether it be another appetite, easily gets in the way. Remember Psalm 137. We looked at it before, months ago. As the psalmist cried, by the waters of Babylon I, I wept, longing for home. We made the point in Psalm 137 that there were many in Babylon who didn't weep anymore, who didn't long for home anymore because they had become everything Babylonian. They had drunk deeply of all that Babylon had to offer them. But the pilgrim, the pilgrim hungers for home. The pilgrim hungers for Jesus. I want to read a couple quotes to you all in a row. I've heard that sentences, not so much paragraphs or chapters or even books, change us. And I think these are some powerful sentences on this subject. The first is from Cornelius Planinga, who I know some of you saw recently. He was here in the city He writes, self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude and self-discipline, usually its friend and generator. That is why gluttony is a deadly sin. The early desert fathers believed that a person's appetites are linked. Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil our appetite for God. From John Piper, an author you know I like. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven. It is endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not His enemies, but His gifts. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because He is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. And then finally, Richard Foster, an author who's written on the spiritual disciplines, he writes, more than any discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food and other things. The challenge to my own heart this week, and the challenge that I set before you this morning from God's Word is, what is the state of your longing? What is the state of your hunger? 
Fasting doesn't say that the things that God has given, that His gifts are bad, that the physical ought to be denied or rejected in full. No, it just says that God is better than those things. Getting back to the Apostle Paul, there's this wonderful phrase, this wonderful statement that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12 where he says, I will not be dominated by anything. And I think Paul's life gives testimony to that fact. Fasting declares to our own hearts and to God Himself that we will not be dominated by anything. Do we hunger? Do we long? Or are we slaves to to our comfort, to our own pleasure? If so, we need to let the discipline of fasting back into our lives. And we need to let that discipline begin to do its work in us in this pilgrim journey. That is the why of fasting. Well, there's one final question for us to ask. It's the how. How do we do this? Well, there's books and volumes written on the how of fasting. I couldn't quite exhaust them all. But let's talk a little bit about some real nuts and bolts of fasting. First of all, I would say, real practically, if you're someone who has never practiced fasting, begin. Repent. Pray for the grace and the strength to begin. And start small. Don't go 40 days into the wilderness. Start with replacing your lunch break meal with an hour of prayer, with an hour of meditation upon a psalm or upon the Scriptures. Here would be an appropriate time to say that some of you shouldn't be fasting. Some of you shouldn't be fasting. At least you shouldn't be fasting from food. And there are all kinds of various reasons why that is the case. But I think the Bible, when it calls us to fast, when it calls us to long for Jesus, over and above the comforts of this world, it's speaking actually more than food. We do have at least one occurrence of withholding a good gift for the sake of prayer. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that married couples can abstain from sexual pleasure in order that they might pray. And so fasting this morning, this call to hunger, and to do so through the practice and the discipline of fasting, isn't necessarily food. But ask yourself this morning, what good gift has God given me that I can deny myself of for a time in order that I might show to my own heart that it doesn't have mastery over me? And in order that I might be focused 
on the giver of that gift. In order that my intensity of longing and hungering for what is not here might be greater. Maybe it's, maybe it's media. Maybe it's the television. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's the cell phone. Maybe it's talk radio. I don't know what it is, but the Holy Spirit knows. And I would call you, even as I wrestle with this in my own heart, to think. To think about what God would call you to give up for the sake of expressing your hunger for Him. I want to read a passage from the book of Revelation, a vision that John was given one familiar to many of us. This is what lies before you, people of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And there shall be no mourning, no crying, nor pain. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will forever and ever. And He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what soon must take place. And behold, I am coming soon. See, this is the, the certainty. This is the vision that lies before us. The promise and the work that has accomplished it ought to move us to cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come! We long for You to come. But until then, we wait. We rejoice. But we also fast along this pilgrim journey. We fast that our joy might be intensified. That His work in and through us might be multiplied. Going back to the longing that I spoke of at the very beginning of this message, that was a longing of the summer that was filled with uncertainty for me. Would the longing, would the resolve be enough to show her that I loved her, to have her love me back. Well, by God's grace, there she is. It did pay off. 
But you see, with this longing, with this hungering, there is no uncertainty. There is only certain hope of what lies ahead. A beautiful presence and an indescribable glory that lies ahead for those who are the Lord Jesus's this morning. And so I call you pilgrims to hunger with me. To hunger for Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the promise, for the vision that John gives us of what lies before us. The fullness of Your presence. The glory of Your being. Which trumps any light that we know. Either man-made or natural. And that's so impossible for our heads to even get around, but it's glorious for us to think about. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that Your Word this morning concerning this hungering and how we can intensify and how we can practice this hunger, that this Word would take root in our hearts that would change us that it would grow us, that it would steal us and undergird us for the journey ahead. Father, we love You and we thank You for loving us. This we pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.